Right, right. It's all good, though. And we're going to tell Brandon to keep all that. What's up, everybody? This is KJ Kearney. I'm with my good friend and extraordinarily talented food blogger, food social media strategist, Anella Malik. Say what's up, Anella. Hey, y'all. And today, I'm going to admit, we had something planned that we wanted to discuss. We talked about this all week. And then at the last minute, I was like, hey, Anella, I want to talk about something different. So... (laughs) Let me just first KJ plan. Yeah. So let me just first start off by saying thank you, Anello, for being accommodating to your partner. Uh, But I think this is something uh, that's super important. And we want to get some feedback from our listeners, of course. But I'm very interested to hear about what you have to think about the topic. So let's get straight to the proceedings this evening. We want to talk about the difference between training and practice. Okay especially as it relates to diversity inclusion initiatives and especially as it relates to the food industry. Okay. So I've been interviewed by some podcasts and some publications, some, you know, business community people, and we've been having some really robust discussions around this topic that, you know, we are now in this uh, grand awakening, this racial awakening that's happened during COVID and with uh, the, the high profile deaths of black people at the hands of police where everybody is woke now, which is fine. Like, I'm not against that. This is not going to be an episode where we bash wokeness, so so to speak. But we will be talking about what are you actually doing in your daily lives to make all this diversity training and this inclusive training an actual thing. So for today's definition, I want us all to be on the same page. Training is going to be referring to all the diversity trainings, whether it be workshops or Um, books that they ask you to read, videos to watch, and then practice. We're talking about daily implementation of that training. Okay, so now we're all on the same page. And Anella, let me just get straight to the point. When you hear, all right, this phrase training versus practice, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Okay, so I think that we are overlooking and we often overlook a very important form of training. And that is why this problem, whether we're talking about diversity and inclusion in the food space or in any space in our society, but that's why this problem is so pernicious and ever-present, right? Because last year we really saw, I'll just say it, people were like, I can read my way out of racism. They wanted to read all the books and have the discussion groups and they felt that that was going to make a big difference. And I'm not saying that those initiatives didn't make a difference. But think about one book club as a discrete amount of training. And then think about the training you've received your entire life from our society. So think about undoing, relearning, and rewriting your entire primary school and beyond education. All of the messages you've also received subconsciously from media, from movies, from music, from the news. And then, you know, ballpark how many hours that is. I don't even want to think about it. And weigh that against your book club or your one hour training at work or your two hour training at work. And I think that then we start to understand why we can do these trainings in the last year, but 
in practice, we haven't seen the results we want. And I'll say that we haven't seen them because I haven't seen them. And it's very telling that the same day that we got, you know, a guilty verdict for the murder of George Floyd, we also saw a young girl killed in a confrontation with the police, a young black girl, basically at the same time, right? Her parents were protesting and marching as we were joyously celebrating this verdict. And that tells me that in practice, <laughs> we still have not seen the changes we want. And I would say that we are not seeing them in the food space necessarily either. And I know that food and beverage right now is going through a huge transition because of COVID. Everyone's retooling their business models, right? The online space has taken on much more importance as that's the primary way to reach customers right now. People still aren't out and about as they used to be, though it's starting to change. And so I know that we're seeing a lot of upheaval and a lot of folks would say it's not fair to judge this particular sector given the upheaval. But I'm like, well, since they're already changing things, it might be a great time to change some more things. Right, right. So that's that's really my fundamental issue is that I think when we talk about training, we so often think about like these very discrete, concrete efforts that many of us, including myself, have put in in the last year to to relearn a few things, but mm -hmm. stack that against your whole life. And then you get an idea of what I think we're up against when we're talking about diversity and inclusion and when we're talking about issues of race, gender and class. I think that's very well put. I'm not even going to try to to copy what you said because you said it so well. I will ask, though, a follow up question to the things that you said, which is trainings are great in the sense that it provides people a tangible plan. Right. So even if they're not implementing it on a real life day to day actual situation, real life situation, the training at least provides some guidelines, some information some plans, some worksheets, some role playing, whatever the case may be. So how, in your opinion, now that you're just one woman, right? In your opinion, how do we take this training? And let's just specifically talk about the food space that we're in, which is social media influencing, blogging, so forth and so on. When you're talking about these brand partnerships and all that, how do we take this training and then implement it in real life? What does that look like from a social media perspective? Okay, so I think there's some very concrete ways that this can happen, and I've seen it happen. There are some organizations that I think are really forward-leaning on this. The most important part in any business is to set clear guidelines and standards by which you can be measured, right? There are other things that maybe are more difficult to measure that are obviously important, but like if you don't have a baseline standard, then you don't know what you're aiming for. So brands should have a minimum percentage for each campaign of creators, bloggers, influencers that they hire that identify as BIPOC folks, period. They can set that per percentage however they want to set it, but they need to have that minimum standard and then collect that information from people as they're hiring them and factor that into their decision making, right? I would say that if you're contacting a business, a creator, a blogger, specifically to create content around a holiday that's related to their identity, you better hit them up early and you better be ready to pay extra because now you're looking to exploit something that only this person's particular lived experience can offer you. And that is a very different pay scale than just being like, that person can take a pretty photo. And I've seen this in relation to, for example, Black History Month and Juneteenth. 
Juneteenth is coming up. We'll see what happens. But for Black History Month, I had the opportunity to partner with an, a company that I think did it right. They contacted me early, right? They had the money, they had a clear vision, and they let me tell my story. In contrast to <laughs> quite a few companies for Black History Month hit me up February 6th, and they didn't really have a budget. And they were just like, but we think it'd be great uh, to highlight you, but could you give us these six things? And I'm like, asking me to do 10 hours of free labor so that you can use my cachet to boost your brand for Black History Month is the opposite of what you should be looking to do. Thank you very much. And we'll see when Juneteenth comes around how many you know, partners reach out to Black creatives on June 10th mm -hmm. to ask them to put together something thoughtful and you know evocative in nine days, likely with a limited budget. Mm -hmm. Or no budget, right? I want to go back to the first thing that you said because... That has been a point of contention when I'm having these conversations with different companies or consultants or whoever the case may be. It is so hard to get people who are not used or don't have the lived experiences that we have, right, to understand that if you don't measure, then there's no real way to tell if you're gaining or losing ground in any particular area? Absolutely none. <laughs> you know, I work in education. And so we can tell if our students are getting better at math or better at reading or better at reading comprehension because we do benchmark tests throughout the year. And then at the end of the year, you know, you have your big standardized tests. I don't understand why people haven't figured out to just take that format and put it with these diversity initiatives. Mm -hmm. It's frustrating to me. It's mind boggling, first of all. And then second of all, it's frustrating. But that's just me. What do you think? So I think there's a little bit of a resistance, particularly in the private sector, to the concept of a quota. But here's what I have to say about a quota when we're really talking about brand partnerships is that there are so many tens of thousands of even millions of creators around the world who are killing it, who are, you know, they have really engaged audiences, they have built a platform, you know, that's really authentic and vibrant. And those creators have all different backgrounds. You're telling me that in 2021, in the age of Google, you couldn't find someone who happens to be brown to make sure that you are, you know, hiring a diverse array of people. And you're really telling me that that quota would force you to, you know, hire somebody who's not as good. No, that's not even, it's not even the case. But we are uncomfortable as a society with the concept of quotas, which I think is a whole other issue. So there's one thing about hiring. And then we have to talk about pay equity as well. So right. there are a few organizations that have reached out to me to work with me, and they have their policies about um, diversity and inclusion in their email signatures, which I think is really, really a great practice, right? Because wow. it tells everyone around them how they're judging you and what they're looking for when they're right. reaching out to partners. So they have a minimum percentage of marginalized creators for each campaign. And they have a statement about how, though they understand that pay scales vary based on some factors that are outside of their control, their base pay scale is based off of a formula that they can plug in to make sure that people are being paid equitably based on their followings, 
their engagement, it's the specific type of deliverable, et cetera, right. et cetera. And we've seen a lot in the past year about how black creatives in the food space and in other sectors are not paid the same for the same work and are right. held to different standards as far as excellence and, you know, their behavior. And so I think that that's like, that is really what I would like to see from more organizations when they reach out to me is that I want, I want those policies to be clear. I want them to be public and I do want them to be measurable. Right. But there's another thing even beyond that <laughs> is, and this might be harder in the creative space because we tend to be freelancers, but I used to work for the Department of State and they kept all this data on us, right? They knew everything about us. Um, and they had data on, you know, the racial identities of their officers and, you know, promotions and how that broke down based on gender and race and all these things. And the data showed that even though minority recruitment had increased dramatically, that like the numbers of overall, the percentage overall of black officers hadn't really budged because we kept quitting. <laughs> we kept leaving. Yeah. And so, you know, that's a huge organization and a lot of their policies are based on law, right? Because mm -hmm. it's a federal organization. So it's, yeah. it might be more difficult to change some things, but I can tell you right now that if your data shows that all the black people quit, you have a problem. Right. And I didn't think I'd be saying this this morning, but shout out to the state department because you're absolutely right. You can't change what you're not measuring. And more importantly, let me, let me add a caveat to this rather. Not only can you not change what you're not measuring, but you're telling me what's important to you by telling me what you are or are not measuring, right? So I keep going back to the educational world. We measure how many discipline referrals a kid gets. We measure their reading level. We measure their math level. You know, what thing we don't measure is their happiness, right? We don't measure their mental well-being. Yeah, exactly. Like we're not measuring any of that qualitative stuff. We don't care how you feel. We just want you to get these grades in. And so, uh, yeah, I would say the same thing is definitely true in my limited experience, you know, because I'm newer to the brand partnership thing than you are. But going forward, what I would like to do is ask people about these policies specifically so that we can all be on the same page, not to be like, I got you. I knew you were racist. But if we know what we're judging each other on, Right. If we know what we're expecting from each other, I think having those measurables in place would do a much better job of keeping everyone above board and keeping our collective eyes on the prize. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, the difficulty in the freelancing space, you know, this food content creator space is that some people are really open about their rates and about their pay and others aren't. So there's a lack of transparency in general that I think need, needs to be worked on. Um, I do have blogger friends who I can reach out and be like, what do you typically charge for this? You know, how did you do this video? What did they, what were your, <clears throat> you know, deliverables for this campaign, et cetera. But there are others who just won't answer you. And I think companies exploit the fact that we don't talk to each other. We are siloed. We're not unionized. We are literally alone in our apartments, usually uh, working. That's how right. Works. It can be very lonely. Yeah. And I think that that is a, a weak spot as far as ensuring that, you know, we're making or part being part of the changes we'd like to see in this industry is that I might feel great about this campaign, 
and then in six months find out that they paid a smaller account with you know less engagement more than me it's very difficult without some sort of transparency to make sure that that's not happening mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it goes that's... back to the lifetime of training we've had it might not be this brand's intention to underpay me but their judgment of my value is absolutely informed by their lifetime of learning about mm-hmm. what black women are worth. Yes. I definitely ask when people reach out to me now, I definitely ask like, A, are you paying other people for this same type of work? And B, if you are paying them, how much are you paying them? Like, I want this conversation to be upfront and center. Now, if your numbers are higher than what I was thinking of charging, I'm going to shut up. And I'm going to be like, yes, I like those numbers. <laughs> if they're lower, then we'll, 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 we'll have that talk too. But yeah, I agree with you, the transparency portion. And that's really, you know, I think that's one of the key steps into building a bridge from training to practice, right? One of the key rungs in that ladder is going to be transparency. Corporations have done a great job of fostering an environment where pay inequity between men and women, between black and white can happen because they've made it seem like if you openly talk about your salary, that is somehow a violation of human resource uh, policies or some like state or municipal law. That's Mm -hmm. not true. So if anybody is listening right now, let me tell you, and Anella worked for the state department. So if I'm overreaching, she'll check me. It is not illegal for you and your coworkers to talk about how much y'all get paid. In fact, the only way that everyone is going to get what they justly deserve from a pay and compensation standpoint is if everybody knows what everybody makes. I have no idea whether that's true or not. Um, <laughs> I'm like, don't put me on the spot. I'm foreign policy. Foreign, right. You're right. You're right. Foreign, you're definitely right. But, you know, generally, I think that. I'll give you an example from my very small community that I love that I've built online. I get a lot of hate, which is just part of it. But one thing that always touches a nerve with people is when I talk about money. And I do it deliberately because, well, a couple reasons. When I started Feed Them League full-time, I promised my husband that if I couldn't make it work in two years, I would quit. And I'm serious about that. I'm about a year in. And I think people don't realize that, that for me, right, I don't really give a crap about being internet famous. Like, I want to be able to do work that I think is impactful. And I want to not work 12 hours a day, six days a week. And I would like to also be able to pay my rent and save and travel a couple times a year. And if that, if I can't make that happen with Feed the Malik in two years, I will quit. Um... And so, you know, for me, money is, is an important part of that. I didn't start this business with any like startup capital. I had debt when I started that I'm paying off. You know, I was leaving a job that was very stable. Ahmed and I both have a ton of student loans uh, and we want stability. Um, and in our society, money is a way to get there. And on top of that, I also talk about money and pay because I think it's really important to have this conversation. But Every time I do, I get at least one message from someone who tells me I should just be grateful that I get to work for myself or that I get to you know, do the work that I want to do. And I should not talk about money. I shouldn't talk about whether I need money. Um, 
sometimes it's like, I'll ask people to join my Patreon and they'll tell me that they don't like that. I'm asking them for money. Uh, they just are here for the food. And I'm like, so you're here to consume what I'm giving you, but you can't support me to be able to do it. And so I, I just take those comments as a sign that we are not where we need to be as far as our communal comfort with issues of money and finances. You know, maybe this is a good thing for me to talk about on this episode because I want people to understand that when I'm hitting them up, it's not like I'm DMing them, right? I'm just sharing all my stories or maybe in a post about how I would like them to join my Patreon is for my work. What I'm saying is like, y'all, the clock is ticking. <laughs> I have 14 more months to figure this out or I will literally delete it. And this is one of those things where I think if I announced on my accounts that I was deleting Feed the Malik because I wanted stability, people would be in an uproar. But I've been talking to them the entire time about how financially this has to work for my family. And there's a disconnect there between in the digital space between the work we do and the compensation we receive because we've been, I think in our culture, we've been taught that content is free for the consumer. People don't like paying for regular news outlets anymore, let alone paying for someone who, you know, teaches them about food in their community. People don't want to subscribe to the New York Times. Like I'm not the New York Times. So I have a, a much higher barrier to overcome to convince people that my work is also valuable. But I think those same people would be shocked if I told them I was going to delete it all. Wow, that was heavy, bro. I mean, that was heavy, but it's also real. And I think what it what it triggered in my mind is this idea when we talk about diversity and inclusion of this um, paternalism, right? Mm -hmm. Like that they know what's best for us. And this idea that you would ever push back against any preconceived notions or standard operating procedures shows that you are a ungrateful and b maybe not worthy of the perch of which you sit on, which I think is ludicrous. You know, I, I really want us to think about that too. Uh, think about the paternalism in all of this, this top down approach. And even if we take race out of it, right, you have executives and then you have the proletariat. And the fact that the proletariat in many cases is not able to come together to make demands to those above is going to continuously fracture any movement that gets made when we talk about pay inequities, when we talk about opportunity, right? Like even, even if we leave money out, bro, like you said, there are hundreds of thousands of black and brown indigenous creators out here i never i rarely rather never is not the right word because i've seen you in some stuff right shout out to stella Atois. and um i've seen you in some stuff and i've seen other people in some stuff but for the one anella that i see right i'll see 50 non-anellas yeah. and by non-anellas let me be specific y'all i'm talking about white people so that is something that i think it's like a all these things are entwined. Exactly. Like when I was running for office, one of the things that I learned is you can't pull one string without pulling the others. And politicians who are good at pulling one string and making you forget about the other string, they're the ones that usually win. What do I mean by that? We can't talk about quality of life if we're also not willing to talk about something that's not sexy, 
like public transportation, right? Quality of life and being able to get around are intrinsically linked. So let's take that and transpose it into the food sector, right? I don't want to hear about you talking about like, yo, we love your post. We love that you highlight all these black restaurants and black chefs and da, 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 right? That's one string. We love that. And then the other string, when we talk about, oh, you love that? Well, pay me and I can do that for you or pay me so I can continue to do this work. And that's a string they don't want you to pull. Some people, some corporations don't want you to pull. And you're saying that you've experienced that. Oh, absolutely. And and I'll take it a step further. I get a lot of people who say that they love my account because I'm extremely picky about my partnerships. And they'll say, you know, I can tell that you when you take on a partnership, it's something you really enjoy because it comes through. Um, and I also get people who say that they love that I spend so much time supporting small businesses and that you know, I showcase this diverse array of uh, places that they don't see on other local bloggers accounts. And this is no shade to anyone in my community, but I'm saying this frankly, the reason why you'll see things on my page that you won't see on other people's page is because I'm paying for them. And that is a privilege that I have because I've managed to make a little bit of money in this space. And I take all that money and I spend it at small businesses that don't have PR representation, that can't afford to invite me in, that probably don't even have the wherewithal to think about influencer marketing because they're right now literally just trying to survive. These are really small mom and pop shops, most of them. So people love the diversity of things they find on my page. But what they don't understand is that that diversity has a much higher cost than I could run my account and dramatically decrease my business's costs if I just accepted all the free invitations from places that typically have marketing budgets and they usually come through their PR person. That's why you will see in a community certain restaurants so overrepresented in the food blogging scene. And it's not necessarily because they're better, it's because bloggers have more opportunities to go into those spaces and do it for free. And content creation costs money. Food costs money. And so people will say on one hand that they love all the mom and pop shops on my account. And they mm -hmm. love that, that I'm showcasing food that isn't free. Some of them will be like, yeah, I've noticed that a lot of other food bloggers, like, you know, the food that they're showing is mostly free. And I'm like, that's because that's probably what they can afford. Right. Right. It's like, that's what they can afford. And I can afford a little bit more, but I'm also still in this space where I'm like, I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to pay off my student loans. I don't know if we're ever going to be able to buy a house, like with my income, the way it is right now. Yeah. And some months I'm like, I really don't know how I'm going to make it work. I usually like cobble it together at the last minute, but that's stressful. And it's, you know, it's something that I don't want to be doing. Yeah, definitely. I don't want to be living that way long-term. And so I think there's just this disconnect in the food blogging scene because we complain about bloggers who get everything for free. I have seen people, regular followers and consumers complain about it, but then they are consuming free content. And I think that there is a disconnect between, you know, this understanding of the fact that like people have to pay their bills and then applying that to content creators and applying that to food bloggers who like some months dining out for Feed Them Lake, I will spend over a thousand dollars. And that is a thousand dollars that goes to literal hole in the wall spots close to my house, 
mom and pop shops, black owned restaurants that just opened that I'm highlighting. But then when I ask someone to join my Patreon for $5, because they say they love my coverage of local black owned businesses, they'll tell me I should just be grateful. Bruh. So God, that's just so, okay. I'm, I'm speechless because you said so much and I want to say so much, but we don't have all day to talk about this. Well, let me just say this though. Number one, I do the same thing. Like I have a Patreon I'm making a couple hundred bucks off the Patreon, definitely not enough to quit my job. And I'm taking that money and I'm going to Caribbean Delight and I'm buying the large oxtail. You know what I mean? Yes. Like I'm going to Rodney Scott and I'm buying the wings. Like I'm getting the money that people are giving me graciously. Thank you all. Yes. But I'm taking that money and I'm reinvesting it back into these black owned restaurants. And so you know, I think this ties in beautifully to what we're talking about. You know, at first we talked about corporations, training versus practice. Now what we're talking about is from an individual food blogger perspective, training versus practice. So you can say in your training, you can make all the pretty infographics that you want about how diversity matters and you need to be supporting this and all these other things. But if your practice is I'm only coming to your restaurant if you're giving me free food, okay? Then how diverse can your offerings be? Because to your point, a lot of these, especially these Black-owned restaurants, they don't have marketing, right? So let's take out marketing in any form. Marketing person, nope. Marketing budget, nope. Marketing concept, nope. Marketing brand guides, nope. They don't have any of that stuff. So the onus is not just on corporations, but as people, as individuals, whether you're a food blogger or not, to take all this training, right, that you've been getting, because we've all been getting some form of training, whether it's like you said earlier in the episode, whether it's a book club, right, or whether it's a formal training from your job or some workshop that you signed for online, right? We're all getting this training. And I think that's why what I do specifically is super important because I'm giving you an opportunity to practice every single Friday, bro. I'm not even asking you to do this every day of the week, just on Friday. That's it. And, you know, to some people's credit, I have seen non-Black content creators in the food space step up and they have been there for Black Food Fridays every single Friday since they learned about it. And yep. those people are doing it, right? Yep. Like, and And I think that that's the importance of it being a once a week thing, because like, people have lives. <laughs> they have to go to work. They have to make money. They have other responsibilities. And, but like a once a week change for someone who dines out pretty frequently, especially if you're a food blogger, you probably do like, that's a pretty sustainable change. That's pretty um, substantial. And I have to say this again, because people always get offended when I talk about this. And I never say any of these things to like throw shade at another creator. I fully am aware of the fact that people got to do what they got to do, right? That my business model probably won't work for everyone because it's extraordinarily expensive. But I do want my community to understand that when I'm asking them to sign up for my Patreon, I'm asking them to pay my rent, yes. And I'm asking them also to fund every Friday's Black Food Friday. I'm asking them to help me pay for my time for all the mornings that at 7 a.m. I leave my house to go do a photo shoot for free for a Black-owned business that cannot afford a photographer and doesn't have you know, a built out social media presence, like, and I'm asking them for, you know, $5 a month to help me cobble together all of those things to run a business where 
I'm not forced to just rely on free food because it will greatly diminish the diversity of things they see on my page. And to also give me the space to say no to partnerships that don't serve me. And I've talked about this a little bit in a recent Patreon post, but I said no in a way to one of the world's largest companies recently. And honestly, like morally, it was probably the right decision because I have serious issues with their practices, but financially it was the wrong decision given where we're at in Mm. our lives. And Ahmed and I had to have a serious conversation about it. And people sometimes will applaud me and say, you know, I love that you are, you try to be so transparent and I love that you really try to say no to partnerships that like don't make sense. And I always push back and say, that is a financial privilege that I happen to be clinging on to right now, but I'll be frank. It is not a financial privilege everyone has. Right. It's probably not a financial privilege that I will have for my entire career either. This company wanted to partner with me for multi-platform content for a year. They are one of the world's highest grossing companies. And we could have paid off our car, paid down our student loans, started saving for a house and people want to applaud me for saying no. And I'm like, honestly, I still think about whether that was the right decision for us. Mm, mm. And those are the types of decisions that capitalism forces us to make. Yeah. Um, But, you know, I'm not out here to shit on any other creator who doesn't make the same decision because I, I have a husband who will support me if this all falls apart. And a lot of people don't have that. Ahmed's yeah. career is very stable, right? We could probably go live with our parents if it really blew up. And that would be bad, but we know that we would survive it. And so mm-hmm. we're willing to take a few more risks <laughs> than I think other people are willing to take. And that's mm-hmm. a, that's, we need to recognize that privilege. I have that privilege and You know, that's why I've been so focused this entire year on building my Patreon, not because I think Patreon is going to make me rich, but because it offers a sense of stability for someone who really went out on a wish and a prayer to start this business. Like I didn't have a business plan or startup capital. I just had people every day who were like, you have to keep doing this work. It's important. You have to keep doing this work. It's important. And I believe that, but the finances have to make sense or I will delete it all. Yeah. And I believe you will delete it. You, you, in the year that we've gotten to know each other, you haven't been a capper for those of you who are not familiar with the term capping. She's not a liar. She doesn't lie about things, especially as it relates to her business. So I believe that. And honestly, I think this is a good place to stop because I want to end on a positive note that we are not judging you for your social media decisions because cell phone bills still got to get paid, right? Reverend Nelson B. Rivers told me a couple years ago, he is a, a prominent pastor here in North Charleston, South Carolina. And he said, before you organize with anyone, you need to know where they make their money. Because where they make their money is where their alliances are going to lay. And so it's very easy for us to say that, yeah, this person should be doing this, should be doing that. But we don't know where their alliances. You know, if they have children who need medicine, right? They have an elderly parent that they got to take care of. If they got $700,000 of student loans, you know what I mean? That's where their alliances are. And so I don't fault them for taking that big old check that you recently declined 
because that's where their alliances are. So, yeah, we're going to end on that note. I will say I want to plug the next episode because we're going to need your help. Anella and I, our next episode, are going to be talking about black food, specifically what does black food mean to you? So if you're not already following me on Instagram or Twitter, you can do so, Black Food Fridays. If you're not following Anella on Instagram and Twitter, you can do so at Feed the Malik. We're also going to be dropping a TikTok video. By the time you hear this, the video should be up and running, so you'll see that. And we'll definitely mail it out to our, our mailing list as well. But we want to hear from you. What are your thoughts on what is black food? And Anella is really the person who struck this chord with me because she got so much blowback a while ago from a partnership. In fact, I think that context would be good. It might get more people to participate. Do you mind sharing that instance? What happened? Yeah. So I was, I had a partnership for Black History Month and they asked me to make a recipe and to tell a story. And they really gave me free reign, right? To tell a story. They were like, we just want it to be important to you and we want it to be real. And I was like, I got it. So I made a creamy collard greens recipe using oat milk. And I told a story about what black food means to me. And when it was posted, I got a huge amount of blowback, mostly from black people who were like, this isn't black food. You don't know anything about black food, et cetera, et cetera. Part of that was because they just saw my very light hand and assumed I wasn't black. And this is like part of the thing, right? I'm light skin, but I will say this. If you go on my Instagram and this is something that like drives me crazy, but it's just true. If you're dark skin, right? There's a lot of, of research about this. Um, if you have melanin, like you and cameras might not get along. Let's just put it like that. Cameras Fair. were literally not made for our spectrum of shade. Yes, um, very much. So if you go on my Instagram, you'll see, depending on the lighting, I either look super pale or super brown and there's no in between. And I just don't care enough to color correct my skin tone in every single video I make because that's not the point. The food is the point. So that's part of the backstory. I got a lot of blowback, people who saying this isn't black food. And I was like, first of all, what, what do you mean stewed collard greens that are made with plant milk aren't black food? Like, what about the Caribbean? We don't, we don't consider their food ways to be black Preach. food. And also, even if we're talking about regular old American black, which I know is what a lot of people were <laughs> thinking about, I mean, a lot of civil rights leaders were were vegans and, you know, veganism has a deep history in the American black community as a way to free ourselves from, you know, the yoke of the industrial food system, which kills us. Right. So um, I was kind of like, excuse me. And I really felt like the people commenting didn't know their own history, didn't know their own black history, which I thought was very telling because we've absorbed through these lessons, we've learned these trainings through society that black food means one thing. It means soul food and it probably means greasy, meaty food. And that is not an accurate picture of black food ways throughout the United States and throughout our history. But it's also just us buying into the stereotype that white people have taught us about black food ways that, oh, we just like, we just have unhealthy food habits. And I'm like, if we don't unpack that, then we, you know, we still have a long way to go ourselves as a community. Exactly. And that's why we want you to chime in. So you will see 
respective posts on both of our platforms asking you for your input. We're going to read your comments during our next episode. The good comments, by the way, we're going to read them. We're going to share them. And any questions that you might have, you know, also do that, too, because we want to answer questions that you might have related to black food. But that is it, man. I mean, listen, Anella, I'm going to let you because I did the intro. I'm going to let you do the outro. Give give your shout outs or whatever it is you want to say. And we'll see the people next time. So my first shout out will be to every company that I've worked with that has paid me my worth and paid me on time. And let me tell my story. And you, if you're paying attention to my content, you will see more and more of that. And I've been very lucky to leverage those partnerships. So, you know, when you see stuff like that, you should definitely know that that is a rarity, but we want to make it more common in this industry. And to close out, I'll reiterate what KJ said. Hit us up on TikTok, Instagram, Twitter. Tell us what is black food to you? What does that mean? What questions do you have about it? We're going to get really deep into it in the next episode, and we can't wait to hear from you. So we hope you'll join us. And of course, sit at our proverbial table and fix yourself a plate.